0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everybody who's listening, I hope they're doing just as fantastic, if not better. Uh, This is a new experiment that we are embarking upon, a journey of unknown wonder, unknown mysteries that we're going to suss through. And it's coming from a source that we've been talking about behind the scenes for quite a while But, Tim, something that I have been talking about behind the scenes here is your mood. That's a mystery that needs solving immediately.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm doing great over here. Thanks a lot for asking. Yeah, very excited to go through these topics today. Uh, There is a calendar that you've been gifted now a couple of times, and it's a year-long calendar, one of those where you tear off a page, and it's History's Unexplained Mysteries. It's from the History Channel. And so we thought it would be fun to go over one of these each. And uh, you've bought me my very own calendar. So I've been looking through this as well. And I've got a story that I want to tell you about that I've read in the calendar and have dove deeper into. And I've got some research here to discuss with you. And you've done the same with a story that inspired you. So that's what's going to happen here today.
1: Everything you said is correct, except for the part about me sending you one. I didn't do that. That's a that's a mystery. Where did you get that one?
0: Good question.
1: I'm joking. I did send you that calendar <laughs> because we needed to continue this. The calendar I received was for 2023, and I think it was maybe halfway through 2023 when I realized after ripping them off and saving the ones that I thought were fun— It was like, these are great pieces of content, and I want to say it is not officially sanctioned by the History Channel. The calendar is the History Channel's unexplained mysteries calendar, but it's not like the History Channel is sponsoring this yet. (laughs) But (laughs) it it seemed to be such a waste of great storytelling to just rip these pages off, rip these days off and put them in the trash. So I'm glad that we're able to do this today. Yes, you have your topic. I picked my topic. We each independently research them and we will get to them and we will present them to each other and to you very soon.
0: But before we do, we got to tell you about Crawlspace Premium. We are now available on Apple Podcasts. But if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. It's $4.99 a month. You get all episodes, the entire archive of Crawlspace ad free. But not just Crawlspace, you also get Missing as well, all ad free in a bundle. So check that out. And check us out on social media. Let us know what you think of this episode. We're on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, all of them. But before we get to this episode,
1: I have to issue a disclaimer. Tim, you and I are aware that throughout this episode, on numerous occasions, I mispronounced the name of the town in Mississippi where... This series of crimes took place. The town is Pascagoula, Mississippi. And for whatever reason, my mind couldn't wrap itself around that. And I kept calling it Pascaluga. I have no idea why. I was practicing before we recorded because I had a sneaking suspicion that I was going to mispronounce this name, which I did. So I got into my own head, mispronounced it so many times that we weren't able to simply plug in a few moments of me saying pascagoula so you're going to hear me mispronounce this town and i apologize the town's name is pascagoula not pascaluga and we are going to break for commercial and we will return with two stories ripped from the calendar of history's unexplained mysteries
0: Lance, on January 15th, this calendar showed the unexplained mystery of the Annabelle doll And the Annabelle doll has spurred three movies, three different uh, Hollywood movies that um, are not good They're not really even that interesting, <laughs> in my opinion And I am a horror movie fan So these movies are kind of they're in like the Conjuring universe. James Wan um, made some of these and Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga were in some of these. They played the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, in the Conjuring movies. And so the Annabelle movies exist in the same universe because the Warrens had a big part of creating the legend of the Annabelle doll.
1: And the actor who plays Ed Warren is, what was his name?
0: I think that's Patrick Wilson.
1: Patrick Wilson, yeah. Dead ringer for Ed Warren.
0: (laughs) Not really. Not really. Not Not at all. (laughs) No. Uh, So the Warrens, just a little quick background on the Warrens. They are both deceased, uh, sadly, as of 2006 and 2019, And they were paranormal investigators, Uh, and Ed was a self-taught and self-professed demonologist. Uh, He also wrote some books and gave some lectures. Lorraine was clairvoyant and was a, a light trance medium who worked with her husband. So that's Lorraine, and that's Vera Farmiga in the movies. And in 1952, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, known as the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. And they actually, one of the first cases that they investigated was the Amityville haunting. And so I know the Amityville house uh, of Long Island um, was sort of, I guess after so many years kind of known to be a, a bit of a hoax and uh so this is the warrens you know you you've got you've got this couple who are clearly incentivized to have hauntings be a part of reality <laughs> um and you know and this was long before they they had a movie franchise to uh, to think about
1: and and much, much, much longer before the internet came out, which is really impressive that the couple were able to capitalize on all of this without the without the influence of social media to help propel them into the public spotlight. They became famous through sheer boots on the ground haunting experiments and and actually physically attending these things, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And they, they also had a museum. That was in Connecticut. It uh, it is permanently closed as of now, but um, I believe that is where Annabelle the doll still uh, resides um, in this now closed museum. And uh, there's a sign on the Annabelle doll that says, "Warning: Positively do not open." So, positively, just in case you you weren't positive if you thought you should open it or not, uh, positively do not. I would. <laughs> <laughs> and so this Annabelle doll in the movies, the fictional movies, looks a lot different than what the actual doll looks like. The doll is a Raggedy Ann doll, ba- basically. I mean, not, not basically, it is. Raggedy Ann, which was a very popular doll back in like the 70s and 80s. So the story of this doll, apparently a student nurse was given the doll in 1971. This young nurse, Donna... Um, or Deidre, depending on the source. She was 28 years old. So again, um, not trying to, not trying to uh, poke fun at, uh, at Donna. But um, weird gift for a 28-year-old with uh, another adult roommate. I don't know. Anyway. Um, so the doll started moving around. So said Donna and her roommate. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're playing like elf-on-the-shelf type jokes with each other. And they didn't tell each other. I don't know. But apparently there was notes that were left around the apartment, a note that read, help me. And it was written on parchment paper, which wasn't even present in the apartment, uh,
1: apparently. Also tough to write on parchment paper.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So one of the roommates, Angie, her boyfriend, Lou, was in the apartment and apparently had heard some sort of rustling around he didn't think anyone else was there and then he found the doll uh laying face down and uh and then suddenly he felt a searing pain on his chest and apparently he had bloody claw marks running down his his chest but the evidence disappeared because two days later they vanished without a trace those same those same marks wow so at this point, the the women invited a medium over to uh sort of, I don't know, see what they could figure out about this this raggedy Ann doll that may or may not have been moving around the apartment. So the medium held a seance and apparently concocted the idea that this doll was inhabited by the spirit of a seven-year-old young girl who passed away named Annabelle Higgins. And apparently her body had been found years earlier on the site where their apartment building had been built, right? So kind of familiar type of story. That's why this doll is haunted. So apparently the nurses sort of felt bad about it, and they, they let the doll live there. They... Felt bad for the real-life Annabelle. So this is how the doll gets the name Annabelle. What year was this? This was 1970 or 1971.
1: Oh, so this was before the Amityville Horror book came out. I think that came out in 77. The movie came out in 79. Because I was thinking at first, this was something that they wanted to build off of you know okay it's a haunted house but let's try to do this haunted doll thing
0: well it's hard to really say um when this actually took place the only source that we actually have for this is the warrens themselves <laughs> <laughs> so all these people that we're talking about Deidre, uh you know the the boyfriend the roommate the mom who gifted it like n- no one's ever claimed that that was them
1: <laughs> they might not even exist
0: Oh, I would say very, very good chance that they do not uh, (laughs) indeed exist. But that's the story. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So at this point, um, there was a priest who came over, Father Hegan. And uh, Father Hegan and his boss, Father Cook, alerted Ed and Lorraine Warren. So they went over to basically do some kind of exorcism or something something to that effect and uh the warrens believed that there was actually a demonic force uh inside the annabelle doll and and not some benevolent soul that uh the previous medium told the the young women and this is a quote from the warrens spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys they possess people an inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object, and this is what occurred in the Annabelle case. The spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host.
1: This is like a Chucky situation.
0: <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of what those movies, uh, you know, sort of like the only comparison you can even make with those movies.
1: Other, yeah, exactly. Other than the movies themselves,
0: yeah, yeah. And so the Warrens they they took this doll. They said we need to we need to take this doll. We need to do some experiments on this doll. We need to put this in our museum. <laughs> charge charge people to uh, to come into the museum. And so apparently the Warrens buckled the Annabelle doll in their back seat, and they they were trying to be safe about this because. They, uh, they were afraid that, that the spirit could, you know, who knows, who knows what the, the spirit might cut the brakes or something like that in the car. Right. So they didn't even take the highway. So, (laughs) and Lorraine actually claimed that the brakes either stalled or failed several times on the way home. And, uh, it resulted in a near disastrous, uh, crashes, and, uh, but Lorraine claimed that Ed pulled some holy water out of his bag and then the doll, you know, cut it out and the brakes worked fine at that point, but that that's not it. The Warrens while in the, in the presence of this doll, they claimed that it levitated and moved around the house. And it was even placed in a locked office in an outside building outside of the main house. And apparently it later showed up inside the house. And so that's when they decided to uh, make this this box with the, with this glass case that says positively do not open, and then they ended up displaying it in their museum. Um, however, that doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. Still hurt people. <laughs> there, uh, any, anyone who laughs about this, Lance, I, I see you snickering. Don't don't you dare laugh about this.
1: It's it's a laugh as a defense mechanism mostly. <laughs> there's too much here that there's nothing more for, for me to do other than laugh.
0: Right. So uh, several years later, there was a visitor who, uh, who, I guess, checked out the museum and sort of snickered at the, at the doll, how people could believe that this was a real thing. And on his way home, he reportedly lost control of his motorcycle and crashed into a tree and he was killed instantly. And his girlfriend, who was riding on the bike, uh, did survive, but just barely. So that's that's the, the death count, basically, that this doll uh, is attributed. Basically, one.
1: One motorcycle accident?
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is also like a familiar story. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, there's not a name attributed that I've seen. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's true, but really hard to say.
1: Well, I have never seen the movies. I think I saw The Conjuring once, uh, but not the Annabelle doll movies. You said there are three Annabelle doll specific movies? Yeah. And these are supposed to be scary films based on actual events. Yes. Can you imagine this being the Warrens? And let's say you do make this up and it's part of your business model I don't want to go so far as to say it's a hoax. You know, maybe it's a business model that is successful based on people's desire to want to believe in the supernatural. They died in 2006. You said, right?
0: Uh, 2006 and 2019, I believe.
1: Okay. So they at least got to get a, or at least one of them got a little taste of the franchise, right? The
0: Annabelle franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lorraine died in 2019.
1: Okay. Lorraine died in 2019. Uh, So there had already been the portraits of them being portrayed in film with The Conjuring and, and those sequels plus Annabelle. So they got to see a little bit of this franchise developing. So is this like a successful business for them now it it hit hollywood became multiple franchises and i'm sure they saw some revenue from this
0: oh yeah no absolutely um i i don't really know what you know how, how much money they made over the course of those movies but that was like a pretty successful horror franchise made a lot of money and um was mostly based on on their work and their life stories
1: do you ever read these stories and think to yourself, like, why don't I just do that? Why don't I just look at something in my house and be like, that thing's haunted? <laughs> I'm going to take a video of it and I'm going to rig something up so it looks haunted and declare myself a self-taught demonologist.
0: Have I ever thought of doing that?
1: Yeah. I mean, not, not really. <laughs> but now I am. In the 1950s, what a conversation the two of them must have had.
0: Yeah. So there is a little bit more on, on the Warrens being, uh, actual frauds here. Uh, there was this, this documentary that was on Netflix. I think it came out in 2023. It was really good called the devil made me do it. And it's a really crazy story about a teenager named Arnie Johnson, who murdered his landlord while he was possessed by demons, uh, apparently. So this was kind of a, a crazy story in that the idea of demonic possession was actually put on trial. But the Warrens were actually sued in this situation because there was no demonic possession. Instead, it was mental illness. And the Warrens really tried to use this as a way to make money. In fact, they insisted um, that this family would become millionaires if they would just pretend that the boy had been plagued by demons instead of a treatable mental disorder.
1: Man, if that doesn't show you the track record, I don't know what does.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: They must have pointed to Amityville, uh, whatever other cases that they worked on when they were trying to convince this family. So you're like, look, they made millions of dollars from this as well. You could too. So good for them for standing their ground and saying this is too important to just fictionalize as a supernatural occurrence.
0: Absolutely. And uh, so I guess when the Warrens wrote a book called In a Dark Place that was the basis for the, the 2009 movie The Haunting in Connecticut, um, they had contacted a horror author named Ray Garton. And Ray... Apparently, uh, he, he was quoted in an interview saying that Ed Warren told him, make it up. (laughs) <laughs> so this author tried to interview the family that the Warrens were talking about in this story. And he said, you know, he doesn't think that they've got their stories straight. It's inconsistent. And Ed said, all the people who come to us are crazy. Just use what you can and make the rest up. Make it up and make it scary. That's why we hired you. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So pretty crazy. So I, unfortunately, I'm going to, I'm going to have to go ahead out on this limb and say that I don't think the Annabelle doll is real, Lance, but Hey, who knows? Who knows?
1: Are you saying you don't think it's real in the sense it's not even like a doll that has any sort of supernatural possession behind it, or it's just a doll that they bought in a suit, like a, like you know, a toy store and put it in their museum.
0: I, I would probably say, take the latter there. they they There was probably none of this that's actually true, except for the Warrens, uh, you know, put it in their museum. Some of these accounts um, could be true of like, I don't know, there was there was also this priest who visited the Warrens Museum and he apparently picked up Annabelle and uh, again sort of laughed at at the idea that this was some kind of demonic, uh, demonic being. And, uh, Ed even warned the priest, but the priest laughed him off. And on his way home, he was in a car accident again, which is familiar. I feel like this is like straight from the movie, the Omen, but his, his new car was nearly totaled. But here's the thing. He claimed to see Annabelle in his rear view mirror just before the accident. (laughs) Um, and again that you know that priest is not not ever said hey that's me there's no there's no name attributed to that story so it's probably total bs
1: well that is truly disappointing because i'm sure there are a number of actually possessed dolls out there just not getting that attention
0: (laughs) maybe and this ruins it for them (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's true yeah i mean it's it's really too bad that that all this seems it seems fake. It seems like a fun story, but you know, we're not going to give them a pass here on Crawlspace just because uh just because it seems fun.
1: You don't get a pass here on Crawlspace. <laughs> Your story is fun. It's true that it's a story, but it's not a true story. So
0: Yeah. I mean, and no shame, like you mentioned, it is a bit it was a business model for them. Like you know, I, I I'm almost I almost report that part in admiration, I have to say. Because truly, who, who are they hurting um, in most of these cases? Although we did just hear about one family that they were trying to convince to speak publicly about demonic possession when the, the boy was uh, mentally ill. So like there could be a lot more stories like that that I just don't know of. But it seems like it's mostly victimless stuff. But I don't know. It doesn't doesn't mean all victimless uh, for sure.
1: And we'll be right back. After a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program.
1: All right. Well, there's a story that I discovered on April 17th. It was a Monday of 2023. That is the calendar date of which I ripped off this story from our unexplained mysteries calendar. Uh, but Tim, this was not the original story that I was going to do. There was another story that involved a disease called the McGallon disease which was interesting at first until I realized I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biological expert. I hold very little knowledge in the subject matter, and it was disgusting. So I decided that I didn't want to suffer myself through it or you through it or our listeners through it. So I chose this story, again, from April 17th. It's the Phantom Barber of pascaluga which is a story that we've talked about just real briefly i think i might have sent you and jen a screenshot of this and said it's a very interesting true crime story this is something that did actually happen uh, unlike the dubious annabelle story this is not so dubious it did actually happen and as i was researching it i found that there are actually two mysteries
0: here Ooh, okay do tell
1: so if you're ready for this we're going to talk about the phantom barber of pascaluga first have you heard of this
0: no i do recall very vaguely the the name of that but i think that's because you sent us the calendar months ago
1: yes uh this falls into the category of something like the molasses flood when when you hear about it you're like that's a pretty hilarious story and then the more you read about it you realize it's not hilarious at all it's very terrifying. Uh, this was terrifying. Uh, the story takes place in the town of Pascalooga, Mississippi. Uh, today, the population is just under 22,000, 21, 849. But the population back in 1942, this town had a population of 5,000, and it seemed to overnight triple to 15,000. This is because of the location. It was located on a harbor, on a shore. It was a fishing town, and during... The early days of World War II, it was instrumental in military operation. So that also came with a level of suspicion and a bit of paranoia because of where it was located. There was a lot of suspicion in the town about people who were strangers who had come to the town. Perhaps they were spies. Perhaps they were sympathizers to the enemy. So there was already this heightened level of suspicion and a little bit of paranoia, especially among the night shift fishermen or night shift war workers on in the docks, in the harbors. So they worked round the clock. So I'm going to take you and the listeners to early June of 1942. We're at the... Convent of Our Lady of Victories, where we meet Mary Evelyn Briggs and Edna Marie Heidel. These are the first two known victims of the Phantom Barber. And I'm going to read really quickly from one of the articles that was written. It's a San Francisco Examiner. This article was in August of 1942. When Mary Briggs awoke in her room, she recognized the room but thought she was still asleep, for there was something strange hanging over her a grayish blur surrounded by a smaller blur as though there were not quite enough darkness to fill the room and these void gray spaces had been left. Then all at once the spaces became solid and she was wide awake staring into a man's face. Terror surged in her throat and she was throttled there before it could escape into a scream. The man had moved, his finger was at his lips and he was whispering. So she wakes up in her bed, there's a man standing over her And eventually she does muster up enough courage to scream as he's moving about the head of her bed. So she screams, wakes up her roommate, Edna Heidel, and starts declaring that there was a man in the room who just jumped out the window. She finds out later on that both of the girls' hair had been cut. So this is the first instance of the phantom barber sneaking into a room and cutting the hair of young girls. Now, Mary is pretty much the only person who ever is able to get a look and describe the person, and she only is able to describe him as a kind of short, fat man. That's quoted. So we move on to the next victim, who is six-year-old Carol, and it's either pronounced Petey or Patai. I heard two different versions of that. Carol Petey, we'll just go with that for the uh, story. This is just a few days later. She woke to find the screen on her window slashed open and much of her hair already missing. Now, strangely enough, even though there was ample opportunity, her twin brother, with whom she shared the room, remained untouched. So for whatever reason, the phantom barber of Pascaluga on the second attack went for the female, not the male, even though he had plenty of opportunity to do so. So, so far, there have been no instances of violence here. But because each family has young children, and we're talking about this town with the paranoia... It's starting to build, like the word's starting to spread. There's a man who is actually slicing the screens of our children's bedrooms and sneaking in. And this is not an isolated incident. It's happened twice. But there's been no violence yet until June 14th. Things went from unsettling and creepy to essentially all out violent. We have this couple, the Heidelbergs, Terrell and Lillian Heidelberg, the victims of the Phantom Barber, the only known time that he's been violent. He attacked them with an iron pipe as they slept in their room, right? So they're in their house. What? Yeah, he breaks in and they awaken out of the blue. This attack is so fast and so violent that they're unable to describe their attacker, but it is specifically directed at this couple. There's no indication that any hair is going to be cut here. This is the same MO where the screen is slashed. Um, Sort of the same description of the person as much as it can, because again, this was so fast, but the stature was described as similar to the stature that Mary Briggs had described. And even though thankfully they were brutally attacked with this iron pipe, they managed to survive. So, this was not an actual murder. This is a violent attack, but it was an attempted murder.
0: Wow, like a yeah, home entry too, huh?
1: Home invasion. Yeah, we're talking 1942.
0: So yeah, other wow, uh,
1: other than spies and the wartime activities that were happening at the time, I'm pretty sure people felt pretty safe.
0: Right. So only once was the the attack uh, violent in nature, um, but the other times there was hair missing? So that's why this this thing is called the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula?
1: Yes. So the two previous invasions and subsequent hair removals, hair cuttage, uh that happened to the the young girls. This is the first time that there was the invasion and something violent happened. Wasn't the last time, though. Oh, okay. That there was an invasion in the town. So the next one is an adult as well. So it it feels like this individual is escalating, perhaps, and Mm -hmm. managed to get the the children as sort of practice. That's what I was thinking as I was looking into this. Yeah. An adult was next. Her name was Mrs. R.E. Taylor, and this one's creepy. Not like it has to get any creepy, but her description is quoted as, She had, quote, a vague feeling of something passing over my face, end quote. Then, quote, woke up feeling ill, end quote. And as a matter of fact, she described when she woke up feeling ill, it was due to this sickening smell and was, as a matter of fact, violently ill. And as she's recovering, I'm assuming in the middle of the night, as she's recovering from this, she realized that her hair had been cut almost three inches of her hair had been cut, which really upset her greatly because she had just received a new permanent haircut like a perm and now it was
0: ruined. Yeah, that that would ruin a perm for sure.
1: And this is something where when you read it, it does come across as a little funny. You can get a, a bit of humor out of this, but that part of having a vague feeling of something passing over her face is truly, truly gets under your skin
0: it was it was eerie. Yeah. What do you think she meant? I think maybe
1: it could have been the case where if he's cutting her hair sort of like his hands were around her face and maybe she kind of saw shadows underneath her eyelids as she's kind of coming out of sleep.
0: Okay. Maybe. Yeah.
1: Her waking up feeling ill, that led investigators to suspect whether this perpetrator used chloroform to drug their victims. Uh, That would suggest that the perpetrator might have been a doctor, a pharmacist, if not, probably had a close connection to one. Mm -hmm. But... I was a little skeptical on just dismissing that. So I looked into how chloroform works and we've been really fooled by the movies where the person puts a little bit on a cloth and puts it to someone's face and then they instantly pass out. You need to really breathe that in for a while. That's the, I did some research on this. I, I might've chloroformed myself to make sure that I was correct on the hypothesis I was running with, but It really would have been a struggle, I think, personally, if someone had woken up, realized that they're passing out, and someone's hand was on their face. I feel like that would have been in the story somewhere.
0: What does chloroform smell like?
1: I don't know, but in all of the articles that I read, I couldn't describe it. I've never smelled it, but Uh I have read that it's almost like a sickening smell, but I'm not positive
0: okay so could that have been the scent that that um miss taylor was smelling
1: yes yes i think that's at least maybe not what she was smelling but that's what led investigators to say she had this like terrible violently ill moment that was based on this sickening smell so that's going to lead us to this chloroform theory so now they have this chloroform theory however again You'd think that there would have been some mention of a struggle if someone was being chloroformed. But in the public's mind, in investigators' mind, this is a possibility. So now paranoia is even heightened to a new level because whether or not it's true, people are starting to assume or people are starting to connect the dots that not only is this person coming in when you're already vulnerable sleeping, but they're coming in and chloroforming you, therefore making you even more vulnerable. And also, other than the screen window being sliced open and obviously the hair being cut, aside from those really vague descriptions, the only other piece of evidence were footprints that were discovered, but those footprints were never detailed enough to make an identification. Uh, I've been mentioning the paranoia beforehand and what was happening in the town at the time and how that was growing. Well, that led to men refusing to work their night shifts at the Ingalls shipyard because they needed to stay home to ensure protection, to ensure that their families remain safe. So now there's an industry that's sort of being affected here. And at this point, law enforcement decides that they need to issue a reward that would lead to an arrest. $300 for information leading to an arrest. That's $5,379 in today's money. And by mid-August of that year, an arrest is made. The man arrested is a German-educated chemist. That makes sense. 57-year-old William Doolin. He's arrested in connection to the attack on the Heidelbergs. So now he's facing attempted murder charges. This led to a search of his property, which turned up... Guess what it turned up, Tim? Nazi memorabilia. Hair and cutting shears.
0: Oh, okay. No mention of Nazi memorabilia. (laughs) Okay, just wondering... If this was a little bit of hysteria, too, pointing in this guy's direction, right? Because it was 1942 and he was a German guy? He was a
1: German-educated chemist. Right. Had connections, was in the area of the country that was a port, a harbor, a wartime harbor. So, yeah, this definitely fueled the Court of Public Opinions fire. That, on top of the human hair, bundles of human hair and cutting shears, that was enough for the court of public opinion and the regular court to charge Doolin with the attempted murder of the Heidelbergs. So police determined that there might've been a couple of motives here. One of the motives, and this was one that I couldn't find what the disagreement was, but Dolan once had a disagreement with Terrell Heidelberg's father, who was a judge. The other motive that police had feeds into your, Opinion that this could have been fueled by wartime paranoia. He did this in a way to impair the morale of war workers. So he was, I think what we're getting at here is targeting the children of the men who are working, the harbors working in the shipyards on wartime projects by invading their homes and cutting the hair of their children.
0: Wow. I mean, it seems like that could be in effect of what was happening to say that was the reason this was happening. I feel like is a bit of a reach.
1: I think I a hundred percent agree with you. Uh, there's something which probably was much deeper here or maybe not that deep at all. Right. But to have somebody concoct this plan to invade homes terrorize the children as this sort of really roundabout way to impair the morale of war workers is so, a little too elaborate for me to swallow.
0: Yeah, it's pretty elaborate, but yeah, again, like I could see how that would actually have worked though. Because it did, right? Yeah. I
1: mean, essentially it did, if this is the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty spooky, yeah. So the hammer of the law comes
1: down or the scissors of the law come down on him and he's sentenced to 10 years at Parchman Prison, And the citizens of Pascalooga could finally sleep easy. However, Dolan steadfastly maintained his innocence from the beginning. And after six years into his sentence, the governor, Fielding Wright, who had believed him to be innocent, administered a polygraph test to Dolan. While we know now polygraphs are not admissible in court. We know that they're flawed. Back in the 40s, they were thought to be reliable, scientific and valid. He passes his polygraph test, and six years into his sentence, 1948, he's released, and he's determined to be completely rehabilitated by 1951. After 1951, so, subsequently, he's pardoned for the crime of attempted murder of the Heidelbergs. Now, you think this all would be a huge relief to Dolan and his family, but that's not the case. He moves his family from Pascaluga. they settle in Waveland, but even still... This is something that has impacted his life pretty much permanently. He's consistently and growingly frustrated with his life and what happened. It grows to the point where he just gives up, throws his hands in the air, signs over everything he has to his wife, and he disappears.
0: Wow. So we're building up to the second mystery on this. Okay. So he's he he never resurfaced?
1: Here we go. Okay. Not only did he resurface, but a body surfaced in the Mississippi River near Chalmont, Louisiana. That was three weeks after he left his wife and family. His wife and his stepdaughter, along with some friends, go to claim the body. There was no identification on the body, but they all identified him as William Dolan. His wife even was so adamant that it was her husband because there were various scars and tattoos that matched William Dolan. So... She was able to claim the body. It was buried in Cedar Rest Cemetery in the Bay of St. Louis, Mississippi. Unmarked grave, which is a little bit suspect. Mm -hmm. And that leads us now to the second mystery. Coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, I can't really determine the time frame on this. But before Mrs. Doolin claimed the body, the dead man's fingerprints, that body that was found in the Mississippi River... The dead man's fingerprints were sent to the FBI to be compared against those that were taken from Dolan at Parchman Prison. Guess what? They don't match. They don't match. Also, in April of 1954, the Hancock County Sheriff Department receives an inquiry from the FBI checking on the fingerprints of a man named William Dolan. And they identified these prints as Dolan, who had been arrested in Sacramento, California for vagrancy, but released the next day. That William Dolan gives his age as 70, gives no next of kin, never mentions Mississippi. So here we have a body that has been buried, claimed as William Dolan. Fingerprints don't match the fingerprints that the William Dolan gave when he was at Parchman Prison. And then in 1954, the FBI checks on fingerprints, from another William Dolan, who was arrested in Sacramento, California, for vagrancy. And that man disappears. So now it seems like William Dolan is on the run, right? His wife must be in on it.
0: I guess so, right?
1: Seems that way, because before he left Mississippi, there was an insurance policy that Dolan had purchased and left for his wife. And as the events played out, his wife made a claim against the policy. But after Dolan was arrested in California... Questions arose, obviously, and the identity of the person who was buried in Bay St. Louis came up. The insurance company refused to pay the claim. And now a photo surfaces of the man in California who was arrested. This photo is compared to a known photo of the William Dolan from Pascalooga. And the people who are looking at those photos realized what, Tim? Same guy? Same guy. Same guy. One and the same.
0: Same guy. So then he moved all the way to California, and so then who was the body?
1: As far as I know, uh, the articles, uh, everything that I have researched in the period of time that I had to do this, they had buried the wrong man, and that identity has not been released.
0: Interesting. Okay. Now, do you think that Dolan was the actual phantom barber of Pascagoula?
1: Well, you know, he had been claiming his innocence for the entire duration of the arrest to the trial while he was in prison, he passes the lie detector test and he was eventually pardoned. But you got to say like everything stopped after that. There were no more home invasions. There was nothing that would suggest that he was anything but the phantom barber of Pascagoula. And most of the people who were residents there believed that he was as well. And he sort of fits the description of someone who would do this. He was German, an outsider, very secretive about his life, and again, the evidence that was found at his home. So even though the polygraph suggests otherwise, and he's always maintained his innocence, everything around it just sort of indicates that he was a phantom barber. But that leaves an even greater question. Why would he do this?
0: Why would he break into homes, steal hair, um, and maybe attempt to kill a couple, and then later moved to California or I guess, I guess perhaps he may have murdered the, the guy who was suggested to be him. Right. I don't know how that guy died, Uh, but then he moves to California and mostly stays out of trouble. It seems like after that.
1: Yeah. He just kind of lived a vagrant life when he moved to California and that's what got him into trouble in Sacramento. But yes, that does raise a question. How did the guy in the water die? And, why do we not know this person's identity? But furthermore, why cut the hair?
0: Because he was trying to freak out the people who were working for the uh, the cause, the American cause. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, it seems pretty random. Did he have like he must have had some interest in in being like a a hairdresser or barber or something like that.
1: That's what I was thinking as well. And I went down a little bit of a research rabbit hole here. And aside from the now very shady Google searches that I typed in Mm. after looking into this, I came up with the affliction. I'm going to do my best with uh, the pronunciation here. Trichotillomania. Okay. Which is typically a person who has a manic obsession of pulling out their own hair. Like if you have a beard and you pull out your hair or on your scalp and you just have a manic obsession pulling out your own hair. But I read another description that includes cutting people's hair. So if you have an obsession with cutting people's hair, this sort of falls under that category as well. The other thing that I found interesting as I was looking on Reddit, under topics pertaining to obsessions with hair, some people have said that this is a form of autism. That... Shiny, soft, smooth hair quality is appealing to those with autism. So maybe this was a case where he didn't realize that he had autism, but he knew that he wanted to have small bundles of shiny, soft, smooth hair. That would make a little bit of sense in my head if we weren't talking about the same person attacking the Heidelbergs. That makes no sense. Here's one, my last one. And I think this is a very, personally speaking, a very far-fetched theory. The hair was being sent to Germany to be used as crosshairs in military guns and bomb sites. That's an, that was an
0: actual theory. Yeah, that doesn't sound realistic. No, but...
1: especially when people in Germany could have been like, just take your own hair. Why are we having this guy <laughs> sneak into homes and take the hair of children?
0: Yeah, I also... <laughs> didn't think there would be uh, real hairs in guns for, for crosshairs, but I guess I don't know my guns.
1: I didn't know that either. That I guess yeah. the lines must at at some point been hair. I guess that's why they're called crosshairs. Strange. Okay. This whole thing was strange, and it led me down, like I said, some rabbit holes that I'll probably try to permanently delete on my search history, but... That is the story of the Phantom Barber of Pascaluga. Hopefully everyone sleeps well tonight.
0: <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for, uh, for hanging with us today for this Crawl Space episode. That was uh, pretty interesting, going over a couple of these uh, unexplained mysteries from this history calendar. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it.